This is Melissa, and today is the 23rd of July, 2023, and this Redux is a talk that Alan Watt did August the 1st, 2013, on RBN, entitled Planned Crises by Masters of Vices, the poem that went along with it. We're moving rapidly down the road to hell. Planned crisis after crisis is working well. We live through a private, big business plan, disguised by politics and media by flimflam. Before you dismiss this news too quickly, read articles, books by Professor Quigley, who was the historian of the CFR, branch of the RIIA, which plans future far through centuries, with myriads of think tanks, organizations set up by world's biggest banks. Shaping the future, revolutions and cultures, amalgamating nations, circling like vultures, ensuring rulership passed to son, daughter, advancing and profiting by years of slaughter. Allen discusses the con of privatization, the free trade system, the creation of a new culture, destruction of the family unit, the new feudal system with CEOs as the overlords. He also talked about the extermination fantasies at Aspen Institute Security Forum. And I mentioned that I wanted to talk about an institute, that I wanted to get into it for maybe a couple of weeks, do a little bit of digging, and that was the Aspen Institute. I received an email from someone a couple of weeks ago, and they just mentioned something about the Aspen Institute, and I thought, well, I know about them. They're kind of culture shapers. That was the extent of what I knew. So I'll read you just a little bit from their wiki and let you hear what wiki has to say about the Aspen Institute. It's an international non-profit organization founded in 1949 as the Aspen Institute for Humanistic Studies. The mission is to drive change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve the most important challenges facing the United States and the world. Their original headquarters were in Aspen, Colorado. But I noticed in reading this, they are now headquartered in Washington, D.C. And I also learned that they have partner institutes in London, Berlin, Rome, Madrid, Paris, Lyon, Tokyo, New Delhi, Prague, Bucharest, Mexico City, and Kiev as well as leadership initiatives in the United States and on the African continent, India, and Central America. Now, I think how I got the perception that I did on the Aspen Institute is that they have something that they call the Aspen Ideas Festival. Alan has linked to that before. And it has a very, uh, you know, culture vibe, I guess you could say. And they have authors, even musicians, even comedians who will come in and deliver a talk on something, uh, as well as academics and politicians and so forth. But it, these talks, if you watch videos from the various years from the Ideas Festival, the talks have the feeling of elongated TED Talks. They're raw, raw, very inspirational in the way the ideas are presented. It has been described as one of the top 50 think tanks. It's very influential, um, not just in the United States, but around the world. 
the Institute was the creation of Walter Pepke, a Chicago businessman who was inspired by the great books program of Mortimer Adler at the University of Chicago. Now, great books is what it sounds like. You know, why should you read the classics? What is the importance of the classics in the modern world? Evidently, Pepke had visited a Bauhaus artist and architect who had designed a minimalist home outside of Aspen. And he was inspired talking to this architect about building a place where artists and leaders, thinkers and musicians could gather. One of the first things that they did was a 20-day international celebration for the 200th birthday of German poet and philosopher Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. So it's got that feel. That same year, they started the Aspen Music Festival. He said he saw Pepke sought a forum where the human spirit can flourish, a place where people can come together and talk about their values, what guides them intellectually, ethically, and spiritually. So on a certain level, it's sounding kind of benign. You, know, you can see that it could be a place where they are shaping culture, but it's so much more than that. It's funded largely by foundations such as Carnegie Corporation, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Gates Foundation, Ford Foundation, and Lumina Foundation. They want to promote values-based leadership, and they have a lot of programs. I'll touch on some of them today, and then I'll come back to it perhaps in writing, and then again next week dive a little bit deeper. So this is just an overview. I was reading in Renee Wormser's book from 1958, Foundations, Their Power and Influence, and early on in the book, he's talking about an earlier commission. It was known as the Walsh Commission. It was actually the Commission on Industrial Relations, and this was started by the U.S. Congress in 1912, and what it did was study work conditions between 1913 and 1915. And one of the things that this commission did was study some of the foundations. The Walsh Report concluded, As regards the foundations created for unlimited general purposes and endowed with enormous resources, their ultimate possibilities are so grave a menace, not only as regards their own activities and influence, but also the benumbing effect which they have on private citizens and public bodies, that if they could be clearly differentiated from other forms of voluntary altruistic effort, it would be desirable to recommend their abolition. So that was 1915. Continuing on, page 29, we are now into the Reese Committee that started in 1954, or possibly 53. And Mr. Rowan Gaither, who was president of the Ford Foundation, was called to account for things that the Ford Foundation had done. He was defending himself. He was defending the position of the Ford Foundation. His position was he was trying to prove the relative unimportance of foundations. And But the writer of this book, Wormser, went on to say that foundations occupy a unique place in our society for many reasons, of which two are important for distinguishing them from other philanthropic bodies. 
One is that foundations are not subject to the normal forms of control by which other institutions are checked, such as responsibility to a constituency or membership or to an academic body. The second is that under the influence of the venture capital theory, so much foundation money has been channeled in favor of social change. And I think when you start looking into the things that foundations fund, you see chiefly they fund think tanks and institutes and non-governmental agencies. And looking into the Aspen Institute, you know, with just being me with no staff, I can't do this in a deep, comprehensive level and track every dollar where it comes from and where it's going. That's massive. On the books, their income, their stated revenue for the year 2019 was over 160 million, and their expenses were 147 million. On the books, you'd think that you'd be able to track down 160 million. And I'm sure, like I say, that you could if you had staff. But what happens is that it trickles in. You find that the Gates Foundation sent them 300000 for one little project, and then I saw another 500000 for another project. I saw Carnegie had given them a $1 million grant for something. So the foundation money, and these are just, this is just one institute, albeit it's huge, that's being funded by these foundations. So it's a lot of tracking money and tracking programs, but where the money goes is very interesting. A lot of it goes into ancillary government programs, and I say they're, they're not really, they're, they're loosely governmental. They are organizations that have a say in how, let's say, Native American children are going to be educated, or they have a say in how uh, the children of New Mexico are going to have special needs met, or the children of Arizona, etc., etc., because the money that goes out in sm small little grants to, uh, to hunt literally thousands, probably, of these small leaders, young leaders, who are going to take their grant and then go take it out into their state or their community or their university or their college and help shape ideas and policy. And the policy is the important thing that I learned that the Aspen Institute is involved in. Because like I said, I thought that it was more or less a cultural thing. So the Aspen Institute has an executive seminar. They have special programs for entrepreneurs. They have special programs for CEOs. They have special programs for startup companies. In 2018, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of Morgan Stanley, was the recipient of the Corporate Leadership Award, and he spoke at that event. He was being interviewed by, I believe that the journalist was from the Financial Times, and she was joking with him that he could run for president. He did not say anything, and then when she mentioned it a few minutes later, he said, I love my job, and he had just been, his contract had just been renewed for another five years. He said, I love my job, I'm happy here. 
But I did notice that all of the commenters there were saying he should be our next president. We need him to be our next president. He's so well-spoken, and he's got such good ideas, etc. Speaking of presidents and who's hosted at Aspen, Barack Obama, who was the president of the U.S. from 2009 to 2017, was heavily promoted by the Aspen Institute and spoke there in 2005. One of the uh, things that makes it hard to track the Aspen Institute is that they are constantly rolling out new programs or renaming old programs or morphing them into other programs. Alan had mentioned in 2013 the Aspen Ideas Festival, and I know that page had been pulled from their website. It was no longer available. I just took the link and put it into the Wayback Machine on the Internet Archive, and I found the schedule from the Ideas Festival in June of 2013. So I want you to notice, I'm just going to read you off the titles of some of the talks that were featured there. These events are open to the public. So think of this institute as circles within circles within circles. You've got public, just everyday people going and listening to lectures or attending a musical event or an art symposium. You've got the same general public who is paying for live streaming of these events. Then you've got workshops where they have their fellows, and they, they have fellows in quite a few different branches of policy, leadership, future thinkers, that kind of thing. And then you have, of course, the inner circles. But these are some of the talks from 2013, open to the public, from the conductor's podium, right? So this is culture, this is music. A civic rite of passage, the case for national service. Interesting, because of the timing here. This was during the time that Obama was president, and one of the ideas that was floated about was, remember, everybody needs to do some national service. Another talk was, can we rebalance our investment in defense? And you'll notice this in years past and in the contemporary programs that they have. There's an interesting blend of cultural, music, arts, that kind of thing, with a talk for the general public about policy, national policy and foreign policy. Okay, they gave an interactive tour of the observable universe. That was the planetarium show. Dancing in Jaffa, a film and discussion. This is just a preview pairing young Israeli and Palestinian children as dance partners, okay? Other Earths and the Origins of Life. A breakfast talk one day was On God's Side, What Religion Forgets and Politics Hasn't Learned About Serving the Common Good. What is Mars Teaching Us? Notes from the Robotic Exploration of the Red Planet future of the Republican Party, democratizing the arts, innovation by participation, religious pluralism in America, Pakistan at a crossroads, what drives the economic health of our states, changing the world by changing behavior, arts, inequality, and the truly rich society, be fearless how big ideas, experimentation, and failing forward can change the world. Raising Girls in the Middle East, Challenges and Opportunities. Inventing the Future, Reimagining Citizenship. 
What can Iraq tell us about the future of democracy in the Middle East? Art for life's sake in conversation with Yo-Yo Ma. Little cocktail reception and discussion. Solar scope viewing party. The Three Rivers Astronomy Club. See, it's just kind of fun. It's down home. It's the arts. It's looking at the big universe. Unlocking the potential of small business in America. Uncharted territory from deep oceans to deep space. Build on it. Designing the future of citizenship. Liquid gold. Are we taking water for granted? Now, this is an interesting one because I noticed 10 years later, they now have something that they call Aspen Ideas Health and Aspen Ideas Climate. And they've got a big water initiative dealing with the world's water resource. And they've got initiatives on food security. So I'm telling you this institute is in it across the board everything. They've got uh, climate solutions and panelists who talk on climate solutions. This year's speakers on the climate included the Vice President Kamala Harris. Again, it's as Alan mentioned in last week's Redux when he was talking about geoengineering and what might be sprayed from the sky what might be done in order to save us from global warming. And he kept saying, you see how they present this? It's a done deal. It's not a question of is there global warming or is there climate change? That is assumed. So all you get from the media, all you get from think tanks, all you get is how to mitigate it. What can we do? What can be done? How can we save ourselves? How can we save the planet? But very interesting to me are some of the programs that they do in Young Leaders Fellowship. They have the Aspen Young Leaders Fellowship. This nurtures future generations to apply the leadership essential to transforming their lives and communities for the better. It's rooted in community, and they tell you. So here they show you on the website, if you dig, they're in every major city. They are funding. The, so the Aspen Institute itself, with the money that they receive from the big foundations, goes on to fund smaller programs and smaller initiatives in cities, including fairly large grants to colleges. And again, so shaping academia. And I say colleges because, you know, obviously the big universities don't need a lot of endowment. So what they're making sure, they select colleges that they say are outstanding in one way or another, and they help them foster, I'm just going to say it, the right ideas. Because that's what you get at the Aspen Institute, is a lot of the right ideas. But one of the things that was most interesting to me is something called the Aspen Security Forum. Now, remember that I mentioned that in this talk from the 1st of August 2013, Alan mentioned extermination fantasies at Aspen Institute Security Forum. So here we have the Aspen Security Forum. Now, I don't know how long this has been on the go, 
but on the website under the Aspen Security Forum, you can see that they have rising leaders. They have the class of 2021, 2022, and 2023. So perhaps this just started in 2021, but here is an example of some of the rising leaders in the class of 2021. So I just want you to get an idea of the kind of people that the Institute is promoting and the kind of agencies where they are involved. I will supply links and you can look at all of them, but I'm going to start at the top of the page here. Jeff Alstott, he's the Director of Technology and National Security. He's a member of the U.S. intelligence community. He is a manager at IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. Uh, he previously worked for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Singapore University of Technology and Design, the World Bank, and the University of Chicago. Let's see, let's skip down here and see. This is Paul Bezerra from the United States Air Force Academy. You've got Virginia Boney, Senior Manager, Public Policy at Amazon. Brittany Carter, Chief of Cyber Programs and Weapons Systems, United States Air Force, Secretary of the Air Force, Legislative Liaison Office. Tara Chandra, PhD candidate, UC Berkeley. Let's take a look and see why. Okay. Her research falls primarily at the intersection of gender and international security. Of course it does. <laughs> Her work also addresses broader theories of insurgency and counterinsurgency. Okay. Rochelle Clegg, she's a graduate of the University of Oklahoma with a bachelor's degree in international security. Hmm. Don't know what she's up to, but... Oh, Department of State. There you go. She was an intern at the Department of State. So she's a young leader going, going places. James DePayne, Policy Analyst, Program Manager of the Heritage Foundation. He's researching U.S. military strength. Catherine Ng, Public Policy Manager, Facebook. She works to identify areas in which industry interests and U.S. foreign policy priorities converge. Isn't that interesting that Facebook has someone in public policy working to identify areas in which industry interests and U.S. foreign policy priorities converge? Hamad Hamad, so that's his name, Hamad Hamad, Foreign Service Officer, United States Department of State. Hmm. Oh, interesting. He's into LGP, LGBT. Oh, okay. He was named the 2020 Atlantic Council LGBTI and Foreign Affairs Fellow and National Security Leader. And he's a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a Fulbright Scholar, etc. Jack Hanley, Naval Officer. Eric Jacobs, independent author and researcher. Well, what is he researching? Uh, okay, so he's had various roles at the Department of Energy and the White House Office of Science and Technology. Okay, we'll leave him alone. Okay, so that was 2021. Skip over to 2023 and see who the Rising Leaders Program Class of 2023 shows us.
Joey Aurora, Senior Vice President of Growth and Partner at The Outpost. He's a passionate believer in the power of entrepreneurship. He has streamlined operations for the DOD Platform One to accelerate the authorization of commercial software to use on Department of Defense systems. Okay, we've got Megan Bellingham, Business Information Security Associate at Bridgewater Associates. I won't read more about her because just her title was a mouthful. Tony Bishop, Senior Advisor, Office of the National Cyber Director, Executive Office of the President. Logan Booth, Vice President, Corporate Affairs, Global Crisis and Issues. Emma Campbell-Mohn, Senior Associate, PwC. I don't know what that is, but she's been a research analyst at Goldman Sachs Global Markets Institute. And, okay, so she's a writer, primarily. It looks like she's a senior associate, but she has had her writing featured in Financial Times, Washington Post, Wilson Center's New Security Beat, and Chatham House's International Affairs. Okay, Marcus Coleman, Director, Department of Homeland Security Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Okay, you get the idea, and I think that that's a good place to start there. Because the Department of Homeland Security has a Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. I don't think that I can convey to you the feeling that I had, and that was what I was hoping that I could do when I looked into this institute. It was a feeling, uh, it was a visceral reaction to life inside the matrix. I'm always reminding myself that politics is a show. I, when I look at things and hear things, I you know look at the dialectic, see where you're being led, look at this versus that, and where you're being pointed. But it was in seeing just one institute and how far down one could go in the rabbit hole that just kind of blew me away. The CEO of the Aspen Institute is Daniel Porterfield. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2020, and he was elected to the Council on Foreign Relations in 2023. Well, who was the CEO before Daniel Porterfield, I wondered? He's been there for a few years. Who preceded him? So I saw this name, and this really blew me away. Walter Isaacson was the CEO from 2003 to 2018. And I thought, where do I know that name? I, I know that name. I, I, I know that name. I should know that name. Well, I thought that Walter Isaacson was one of the CRISPR inventors because I had not listened to, but I had read an interview that he did on National Public Radio. And the way that he was speaking in the interview, at least on the transcript, and I think this was just the, the style of him throwing himself into the story, but he actually sounded like he had had a hand in CRISPR technology. That's not who Walter Isaacson is. Walter Isaacson, among many other things, is a writer. And he wrote the book in 2021, The Code Breaker, 
Jennifer Dudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. So I had pointed this article out to you a couple of times, the transcript, and said, I think this is really important because he is saying in this interview on National Public Radio that they never, that, you know, DNA is just the, the popular big sister, so to speak, but mRNA does all the work. And I thought it was a significant article, what was being conveyed there. So that's Walter Isaacson. He's a writer. Amongst some of the things that he has written, in 1986, he wrote a book called The Wise Men, Six Friends in the World They Made. This was a book about a group of U.S. federal government officials and members of the East Coast Foreign Policy Establishment. And he wrote a biography on them. They included Avril Harriman, who was a big player with Bush, but Bush Sr. The Harrimans and the Bushes have a marital connection, a relationship there. So that's a little bit. That's one of the first big books that Isaacson did. In 1992, he wrote a biography on Henry Kissinger. And then, in 2011, he wrote a biography on Steve Jobs. In 2014, he wrote a book, The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks created the digital revolution. 2017, he wrote a book about Leonardo da Vinci, and then he wrote Code Breaker with Jennifer, about Jennifer Dudna of CRISPR technology. Then I learned in reading about Isaacson that in 2021, Elon Musk announced that Isaacson was writing his biography. Okay? So Isaacson is not just a writer. But he is one of those star makers, you see. He is a writer that is telling you what you should be looking at, who should be made a star. Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Jennifer Dudna, and CRISPR. Star maker. And one of the important things out of the Aspen Institute is their work with novelists and nonfiction writers. This going back to their inception in 1949, they've been giving grants and awards to writers and promoting their work. I noticed that in 2018, Jordan Peterson was speaking at the Aspen Institute. That was the year that his 12 Rules for Life was published. He was introduced and spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. So this is a place where you might say ideas are promoted, stars are made and promoted, your world is shaped. But not only was, is Walter Isaacson a writer, he was the chair and CEO of CNN. He was an editor of Time magazine and he was a Rhodes Scholar. Now. I don't see him on the CFR, but it doesn't really make any difference because there are connections from the Aspen Institute on the CFR and on the Trilateral Commission. Marta Dassou is the Senior Director of European Affairs at the Aspen Institute in Rome. She is the Editor-in-Chief of Aspinia Magazine. This is from the Aspen Institute Italia. This is interesting because 
This is a little bit about that magazine, Aspinia. Aspinia's success is due largely to its adoption of a multidisciplinary approach and to the long list of its prestigious contributors. Now, there's a, a long list of them, but I'm going to single out just a few names here. Zygnu Brzezinski was a contributor. Robert Kagan was a contributor. And for those of you who don't recognize the name Robert Kagan, big neoconservative and one of those neoconservatives from the Project for a New American Century, PNAC. You heard Alan mention that a lot. You had Condoleezza Rice contributing to Aspinia magazine and Jeffrey Sachs. And Jeffrey Sachs is interesting because he was basically the Pope's advisor on climate change. Here's a little bit about Jeffrey Sachs. He's the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University and president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. He is an SDG, that's Sustainable Development Goals, advocate for the United Nations, UN Secretary General Guterres on the Sustainable Development Goals, and what else does he do? He's co-founder and chief strategist of Millennium Promise Alliance, a nonprofit organization dedicated to ending extreme poverty. 2002 to 2006, he was a director of the United Nations Millennium Project. So he's tangentially related there by contributing to a magazine. Another woman that you will often see at the Aspen Institute is the newswoman named Katie Couric. And Katie is often a moderator or a, the interviewer of one of the guests that they have on these extended TED Talks. And Katie is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Here is Robert Blackwell. This is from the Aspen Institute website. He is the Henry A. Kissinger Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Planning under President George W. Bush, etc., etc. Also, at the, uh, a trustee. Now, this is someone who is on the board. She's a trustee of the Aspen Institute. And she's an Aspen Strategy Group member. Her name is Jane Harmon. Jane Harmon is also the President Emerita of the Wilson Center. I mentioned them last week, as did Alan and what he was talking about. During her public career, Jane Harmon served nine terms in Congress, including four years after 9-11, as ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. She recently completed a decade at the nonpartisan Wilson Center as its first female president and CEO. She has served on advisory boards for the CIA, Director of National Intelligence, and the Departments of Defense, Homeland Security, and State. She is currently a member of the NASA Advisory Council, the Homeland Security Advisory Council, the Advisory Board of the Munich Security Conference, the Executive Committee of the Trilateral Commission, and co-chairs the Homeland Security Experts Group, with former Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff. Wow. And she's a member of the Aspen Strategy Group. So suffice it to say that 
Aspen Institute is a little bit more than uh, promoting culture and great books, eh? I'll dig into this in one way or another on the writing, and I'm sure that I'll cover it again next week because there's so much to, to cover there. I just wanted to say something else about Walter Isaacson. He was you know, editor of Time Magazine, right? And Time Magazine is one of those places where it's been asserted, you know, CIA connection, CIA connection. I even found a document, a released declassified document from a government website saying that, you know, poo-pooing this and saying, yes, possibly members of the CIA took credit in Time articles just because they wanted to take the credit. But we're in no way um, an asset of the Central Intelligence Agency. And you find some interesting books that are out there that talk about that connection, but many of them are labeled conspiracy theories. But remember, one publication that is not a conspiracy publication is Rolling Stone magazine. And Rolling Stone magazine is where Carl Bernstein published his article in 1977 called The CIA and the Media. And he said, the history of the CIA's involvement with the American press continues to be shrouded by an official policy of obfuscation and deception. Among the executives who lent their cooperation to the agency were William Paley of the Columbia Broadcasting System, Henry Luce of Time Incorporated, uh, New York Times, etc., etc. So uh, there he is mentioned there. By far the most valuable of these associations, writes Bernstein, according to CIA officials, have been with the New York Times, CBS, and Time, Inc. And, you know, things change and policies change and players change, but I really think when an intelligence agency has its hooks into an organization or a publication, uh, they don't they don't let go, right? They don't let go. One of the things mentioned in the book, Foundations of Power and Influence, was the problem of what they called interlocks. And that's when you have members of boards or trustees who are, they're a trustee on this board. I just mentioned Jane Harmon to you, so you can see interlock there. And Walter Isaacson has that interlock, and frankly, all of them do. That's where they're sitting on multiple boards. That's where they may have simultaneous directorships in grant-giving and grant-receiving institutions. And, you know, in 1958, in this book, Wormser said that's a conflict of, of interest. It is against the public interest. He writes, their independent, uncontrolled financial power often enables foundations to exert a decisive influence on public affairs. I think that is enough for today. But when I, I got just, I don't, you know, again, I can't, I don't have the words to describe the feeling, the, the total entrenchment, you know, in the matrix, because that's what we do as individuals. We come out of it. We come out of a matrix that has seemingly always existed. It just morphs. It changes. It takes on 
new names, new foundations, new ways of running, but this ancient priesthood has been on the go for a long time. This is what Alan described so beautifully. And many years ago, back in about 2014 or so, I did a big project where I organized all of the poems that Alan had written to that time, 2014. And I, what I wanted to do, I had them chronologically organized, but what I wanted to do was organize them by theme, by subject, if you will. And, you know, I ended up with just a handful of, of subjects because Alan stayed on the same kinds of things. So, you know, naturally there were bankers, and there was geoengineering, or, and there was uh, eugenics, of course and social engineering. But I realized that when I got them in the major categories, I had a few poems left over, and I looked, and sure enough, there was a theme there. I came up with two categories. The first was be an individual, and the second was think for yourself. And these were poems in which that's what Alan wrote about. Be an individual. Think for yourself. Because there is a temptation, even years into processing this information and deprogramming yourself, if you will, cutting through the layers of your programming, your education, and coming out and seeing how the world really works, that you want to hang on to something. You're in free fall, but you want you just keep trying to grab on to something. And then people would say, oh, this is so depressing, Alan. You're so, you know, give us hope. Tell it, you know, what can we do? What can we do? And he told you repeatedly, think for yourself and be an individual. Because when you look at foundations, you're up against billions of dollars. And they are funding think tanks and organizations and governmental organizations get a little bit of funding there through the back door and non-governmental organizations and institutes and it can be overwhelming. But the power of the individual, the power of an individual is immense. It has a ripple effect that we cannot know, that we may not know in our lifetime. So here is the talk. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watson. This is Carrying Through the Matrix on August the 1st, 2013. I always start off by suggesting to people that they should make good use of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website. Lots of audios for download. And I go through the system they were born into and explain. I fill in all the blank bits really uh, that uh, they take out of history as to why things happen. Because nothing happens on a big scale in the world without years and years and years of planning by big organizations and governments. Nothing at all. And therefore, when you, when you see wars coming up or free trade coming up or new negotiations, these have taken years and years in the planning stage, never mind the diplomatic stages too, with other countries involved to get the things eventually through. So we're living through a planned agenda. That's how the world is really run, like a big business plan. And it surprised me years ago to find out that big businesses, international corporations, actually work out their strategies for 50 years ahead, sometimes even longer, to do with investments, takeovers, and so on, eliminating competition, all of these things. And government is exactly the same thing. And government really is just an arm of the 
international corporations today because uh, the, the big foundations that set themselves up over a hundred years ago decided to take over the world since they already pretty well owned a lot of it already and they were behind the big wars because they also own the military industrial complex. Now I'm talking about the big international bankers. They actually own the military industrial complex corporations that you're so familiar with. And they decided to take over the whole world and bring and run the world properly, the way it should be run, according to them, since they believe they're the most intelligent of their kind on the planet, and everybody else was simply uh, dependent on them for work, etc., etc. You hear that a lot from big bankers, in fact, how they give us all jobs and works and so on. So... I have to step to the website, you'll find the history of it too, the foundations that they run that really advise governments across the whole planet on all their, their various policies and social policies and so on, and uh, and how they, they, they also put in their own members as prime ministers and presidents. They've done that for an awful long time. It doesn't matter what side you think they're on, there's no sides in this game. Because when you look into an organization such as the CFR, a Royal Institute of International Affairs, you'll find at the global meetings, you'll find the top labor unions there, top communists there, even to some dictators there, along with all the representatives of your own governments too. It's all the same policy. And the policy is to bring in a system where the world is run privately by corporations, as quickly said. And he was the historian for the CFR, and he said that was the agenda, uh, and they'd privatize everything, all the government services and so on, become privatized, uh, owned by corporations, and that's what we have today. And as they amalgamate countries into into super states like the EU, the new Soviet system, uh, they, they privatize all the services back into smaller countries. They're no, really lo- they're no longer countries. No, 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 they're not sovereign anymore, put it that way. They're, they're countries in name only. So it's all working out to plan. And then, as I said, go to cunningsforthematrix.com. You'll find out how it's all being set up. Remember, too, that you help me take along here by supporting me and buying the books and discs at cuttingsforthematrix.com because I, I could take on advertisers as guests and so on and sell stuff show after show, and then I'd be sitting pretty, of course. But then I think it could also compromise you in certain ways too. So I rely upon people to buy the books and discs. If you want to understand how the, the system works and some of the history of it, it's a very old system, this, and the art of controlling millions of people is very old indeed and well understood. You can go buy the books, as I say, and straight nations are seriously welcome as you go through the planned inflation, which is simply devaluation of your currency as you print more cash. And that's the plan worldwide right now, because eventually uh, the plan is to, is to uh, have the Bank for International Settlements uh, run the whole show across the planet with the IMF and the World Bank. All private institutions set up, again, by one organization, one private organization, a club, if you like, in the city of London, and it's called the Royal Institute for International Affairs. So that's the, the, the agenda, and as I say, the, I'm not speaking at the top of my, my hat here or the, my head. It's from their own personal historian who was in charge of their archives. And the reason these organizations have their own archives is they, again, fill in all the blank bits in history. They tell you who finances the wars, who, who benefits from them, the corporations which are all involved with them, of course, all members of these organizations. And they, they tell you where it's all supposed to go. And at the end, uh, the big stick is money. And then by the use of government to, to force laws through on the public, 
uh, forcing vaccinations and all these kind of things, uh, telling you uh, which private corporations you must use now for healthcare and all the other things. Um, it, it, everything's becoming privatized, and they're bringing you into austerity, planned austerity. And the big corporations don't lose anything at all. It's the best gimmick of all because planned austerity means the big international corporations that take over your water supplies from the public utilities and your gas supplies, all of these things that you build up over generations through the public tax money has been privatized. These corporations will make more money than ever, uh, and, uh, and you, there'll be no choices, by the way, for people to, to there's no competition once it's, ha- it's done, and signed into law by governments, and they'll give you less, but they'll charge you about ten times more. So it's a great con, actually, uh, for them to get a lot more money for giving you less. It's beautiful, really. Everything is a con. And as I say, it's the art of conology that runs the world. It really is. has been for an awful, awful long time. Today, now with neuroscientists on board with all of this, the understanding of the human mind, mapping the brain, all the big projects are on the go, and uh, psycholinguistics or neurolinguistics, as I like to call it now, uh, the type of terminology they use to bring you to your conclusion, uh, with a total control of media, which is on board, because um, the media, of course, had to be on board with the big corporations from the very beginning and the big uh, philanthropic organizations or foundations. And they're all members of it. All the big uh, moguls in the media are members of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, CFR. Uh, their job is to keep running in circles, to make you think that crises just happen out of the blue and that government has to go into action to, to, to resolve them on the spot. And I say nothing is further from the truth because anything to do with economy, uh, free trade, uh, uh, wars, all of these things take, take a long, many, many years uh, to do just in the planning stage itself before anything is implemented. Years and years in the planning. And uh, remember, too, with free trade negotiations, which again was the, the brain child of um, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, it's a private organization, they, uh, they said that free trade eventually it w- would uh, tie up the world into trading blocks. And the first world countries must pay for the third world countries that join. Uh, in other words, you'll pay for their hospitals, for the setting of factories near countries with your tax money. Uh, they'll still be allowed to tax your imports, uh, your exports to their countries, uh, but uh, you won't be allowed to tax the imports they demand that you take from them. That's what free trade really is. That's what we're still doing with China, by the way. For 20 years, they, they can, or 25 years, they can actually uh, keep charging for your import duties from the U.S., Canada, and elsewhere. Well, you must accept your stuff uh, gratis, basically free. Now, the, the, the taxes you're losing back home in the first world countries or, the, or the, 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 the governments are losing are not being lost at all because they simply introduced new taxes from the general population. And that's what, that's what it's all about, is to make up for the taxes they're losing on import duties. At one time, the import duties ran the country, even before income taxes. So... You're living through a planned agenda. It's a global agenda. Every country is on board with this. The ones who haven't been on board are being bombed out of existence right now. And then they've been given a thing called democracy, which is a nice sham. And they're given uh, debts by a central private bank installed. And then they borrow money from the World Bank. And the IMF comes down like a ton of bricks, demanding massive compound interest. It's a wonderful scam, mind you. And... uh, there's, there's really nothing in this world right now to oppose this agenda, nothing whatsoever. 
The unfortunate part is, too, all their big think tanks that belong to these groups have studied us so well, and they know we will adapt to anything, given time and the right indoctrination. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks. We're back cutting through the matrix and talking about the only thing that matters, and that's the big world system that runs us all, because it knows where it's going. Every country's involved. All the top politicians are involved. In fact, they're members of one organization worldwide. And they swear allegiance to it. And their allegiance comes before any other oath they take afterwards, believe you me. Now, part of the whole idea of free trade, too, and we've got all of these things going on. We've got the one with, the, with China. We've got free trade pacts with countries across the planet. And you've got the, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership free trade deal, too. And there's many other ones to do with Latin America. It's all to do with uniting the continents together. Uh, first, the continent itself, and then uh, with other continents. And so that's why they're doing this now. Now, the organization, again, when it was called the Milner Group, Lord Alfred Milner Group, that ran the system and it morphed into the Royal Institute for International Affairs, came up with the whole idea a long time ago, about 100 years ago, and they tried to get it in uh, during the times just prior to and then during and after World War One, And they set up these deals with the U.S., uh, and they called them pan-European projects and pan-American projects and so on, but the public wouldn't go for it at the time, so they knew they'd take a long haul, and it would take them maybe a 100 years to bring in properly and train the public to accept it gradually. And they certainly went to that task and did it awfully well because now it's all happening. Now, the 21st century, they claim, is a century for change. That means all the plans were worked out for society and the elimination of nations even were, were, will come into effect in this century. And then the proper restructuring of society, ordering of society into classes, proper classes, they, they call it eugenesis at the top. And, uh, and so on will be done as well. And we're all categorized today. Uh, it's not just information to do with uh, spying and so on. It's all important to the big boys is categorizing you because that's why they've got to make personality profiles of every individual, everybody in their family, uh, their family history. In other words, they're doing genetics on you. They're starting to see what, not just what illnesses you're prone to, but uh, what's, what kind of IQ you have and so on and so on and so on. It's all to do with this. Uh, many of the big players that helped bring in this present system you're living through with all the things you accept as normal to do with culture were planned 50, 60 years ago by big players who published their findings because they took part in these global meetings. And I've gone through a lot of the history at the end of World War II uh, when organizations were brought into the White House even and given permission by their president to recreate the culture for America, which they did awfully well. The Macy Group was one of them. And uh, you had the Frankfurt School as well. And they did the same with Britain and the rest of, of Europe. Uh, a new culture. And it was really along the lines of the communist culture. And Professor Carl Quigley, the historian of the CFR, said himself that they were often mistaken for communists because their agenda was primarily the same. The big bankers, remember, created the CFR, Royal Street International Affairs. And they liked that form of, of socialism where government is big, it has agencies running the public, and many of these agencies are to do with even training children at school and in forms of indoctrination to serve the system better. So it's all underway today. Uh, the people have adapted into it quietly. The destruction of the family unit was another thing, too. They said it was an obsolete idea. What they really said, too, was that uh, uh, families tend to stand up uh, against government intrusion, 
uh, or when government decided to take someone out or whatever or imprison them because they were speaking out about things, many other families, because they all had so much in common, would stand up beside them, and that was their opposition for centuries. Once the family was eliminated, the government could come down just like Big Brother and George Orwell's 1984 and talk directly down to you. So we're, we're at that stage today. Uh, the big players too, like Julian Huxley, who worked with the United Nations, different departments, he uh, was more explicit on it. He said, we'll create massive uh, promiscuity. And he said that the more partners a child will have, even if we can get them into this before they even get puberty, he says, they'll never mate for life. They don't want families mated that way, you see. And it's worked out awfully well, hasn't it, since the 60s and uh, and the, the so-called sexual revolution. Now, most things are done through revolutions, you understand, and most revolutions are cultural. And those who run the revolutions know exactly where it's all supposed to go. Now, when this nation-state was declared to be obsolete by the head of the, the, the European Union, this massive super-conglomerate parliament that nobody wanted, that's not uh, democratic by any means at all, and Dupuis or Dupuis, whatever you want to call him, uh, he said himself, he said the nation-state is obsolete. And uh, he really meant it. He, was, he wasn't speaking just on his own behalf. He was talking about the United Nations and all the big boys and, and the, uh, the social systems. They're all for this, working for it. And part of the system is they bring countries down into austerity, supposed austerity. It's all to do with control and the moving in of private corporations that take over all the public utilities and so on and really just charge you a lot. That's the whole idea. Because when your, your life is being run or you're dependent for everything that you need from private corporations, uh, then there's no point in complaining to the private corporations. You'll be given no choice because the government is, is working with them. They're giving sole corporations, this, this one or that one, the complete right over a particular area or service or whatever. And then when you complain to the government and say, well, we can't do anything about it because it's a private company with nothing to really do with it now. And this is how they're introducing, as quickly said, uh, this new feudal system where the overlords, the new overlords of the people are the CEOs of corporations. They have more say in many ways than, than politicians, more say. And the politicians know this as well. They work quite happily with them because they all, at the top, as I say, belong to the same organization. So we're living through a planned sham uh, the bankers love it. They really love it because it's far easier to get governments to form something like an IRS to get back uh, taxes from the public to pay loans that the nation borrows rather than simply ground the nation like they used to do uh, and, and lend individually to areas. They get the government to do it. It's far, far better for them. Now, part of the privatization, as they sneak it all in, is done by Circle. It's a massive company. It's into everything you can imagine. And what's happening in Britain, which is a flagship for the world to follow, is happening elsewhere. But it says here that Serco is an international corporation. It's not just in Britain. It's just from prisons to real franchises and even London's Boris Bikes. That's the mayor of London that came up with his bike. Serco is a giant global corporation that's hoovered up outsourced government contracts. Now the National Health Service is firmly in its sights. But it stands accused of mismanagement, lying, and even charging for non-existing work. Well, all big corporations do that, because we're living in the age of ultimate greed as well. 
And it says here, in May this year, a huge company listed on the London Stock Exchange found itself in the midst of controversy about a prison it runs for the government, such as the Thameside, a newly built jail next to Belmarsh in South East London. A report by Majesty's Inspectorate found that 60% of inmates were locked up all day and there were only vague plans to restore the prison to normality. The prison campaign group Howard League for Penal Reform talked about conditions that were truly alarming. Two months later, the same company was the subject of a high-profile report published by the House of Commons Public Accounts Committee, prompted by the work of Guardian journalist Felicity Lawrence. This time, attention was focused on how it was managing out-of-hours GP services in Cornwall as general practitioners and massive uh, failings that had first surfaced two years before. Again, the verdict was damning. Data had been falsified. National standards had not yet been met. It was a culture of lying and cheating, and the service offered to the public was simply not good enough. Three weeks ago, there came the grimmer news, thanks to its contracts for tagging offenders, you know, people who'd offended to put these tags on them. Uh, for electronic tags. The company was now the focus of panic at the Ministry of Justice where it had been discovered that it was one of two contractors that had somehow overcharged the government for its services, possibly as much as £50 million. There were suggestions that one in six of the tags that the state had paid for did not actually exist. How this happened is still unclear, but Justice Secretary Chris Grayling has said the allegations represent something wholly indefensible and not unacceptable. And the company, of course, as I say, is Sarko. And I'll continue on this because it's very important to see how things are going. We'll come back from this break. Hi, folks. We're back cutting through the matrix. Talk about Sarko as privatized uh, uh, utilities go under one by one. Sarko is one of the companies that's taken over. Lockheed Martin also is involved in a lot of this stuff, too, across the whole planet. In fact, even I think your, your annual taxes are sent over to India and, and they, they're in charge of all of that, too, plus the census for the U.S. and Canada. But anyway, back to Serco, and it says here, the firm that links these three stories together is Serco, its range of activities here and abroad, truly mind-boggling, and takes in no end of things that were once done by the state, but are now outsourced to private companies. Amazingly, its contracts with government are subject to what's known as commercial confidentiality. Isn't that wonderful? So there's no point complaining to government. It says, and as a private firm, it's not open to freedom of information requests, so looking into details of what it does is fraught with difficulty. See how it was designed to be this way? And I guess all this uh, complaint, complaints departments gets them gone from the government departments, so it's no longer dealing with it too. And it says, but the basic facts are plain enough. As well as five British prisons and the tags attached to over 8,000 English and Welsh offenders, secrecies to immigration removal centres as well, two of them, in Colnbrook near Heathrow and Yarlswood in Bedfordshire. It also sees logo in the Docklands Light Railway and Woolwich Ferry and is partnered with in both Liverpool's Merseyside Sound Network and the Northern Rail franchise and sees the trains that run a huge area between North Midlands and the English-Scottish border. Sark also runs school inspections in parts of England, speed cameras all over the UK, and the National Nuclear Laboratory based at the Sellafield site in Cumbria. It also holds the contracts for the management of the UK's ballistic missile early warning system on the Yorkshire Moors, the running of Manchester Aquatic Centre and the London's Boris Bikes. As evidenced by the story of how it handed out of hours care in Cornwall, it's also an increasingly big player in the health services being privatized at speed. Now, once they bring in the U.S. one, they'll have it going for a few years and say it's unsustainable. And then you have one massive conglomerate, then, and they'll sell it off for peanuts to their 
pre-planned deals are planned, they're pals and all with pre-planned deals, of course. Everything's a strategy, you understand, a big business strategy. It says, but anyway, they privatised the, the one in, in Britain at speed in the face of surprisingly little public opposition. Amongst this array of national health service contracts is a new role seen to community health services in Suffolk, which involves 1,030 employees. It's also set to bid for an even bigger healthcare contract in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, the National Health Service's single biggest privatisation, or if you prefer, outsourcing to date, which could be worth over £1 billion. But all this is a fraction of the story. Amongst other scores of roles across the planet, Serco is responsible for air traffic control in the United Arab Emirates, parking meter services in Chicago, driving tests in Ontario, and an immigration detention centre on Christmas Island, run on behalf of those well-known friends of overseas visitors, the Australian government. In the US, the company has just been awarded a controversial $1.25 billion contract by the country's Department of Health. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. All told, this operation suggests some real-life version of the fantastical mega-corporations that have long been invented by fiction writers, more benign versions of the Tyrell Corporation from Blade Runner, say, or one of those creations from James Bond movies, whose name always seems to end with the word industries. The strangest thing, though, is the gap between Circo's size and how little the public knows about it. Not for nothing does so much coverage of his work include the sentence, the biggest company you've never heard of. So it just shows you folks, this is how the world's rerun. Really this is a longer article, of course, I won't read it all, but everything I read goes up at cutting through the at the end of the broadcast. Uh, it's just fantastic. They run prisons across the planet, this company too. And we're watching everything being privatized, the military and everything else too. And, uh, and we're all taught. You see, we're, we're so distracted with, uh, um, crisis news. There's always crisis in the economy, crisis in war, whatever it happens to be. And that's all to keep you off balance while all of this stuff goes ahead. There are many techniques to keeping you uh, away from asking questions. And when you're stampeding, I always use this term stampeding. It's like a, a stampeding cattle. Um, once you get them going, you see, it's quite easy for the guys, the, the heads, to, to just steer them any way that they want them to go. It's all in a panic. And this is what they do. They keep you stampeding through crisis, crisis, crisis. Quite simple, really. Now, also, too, I mean, the thing is, that's also why the infrastructure is running down. There's roads and everything else. I put one link up tonight about that, too. And it's, um, it's called U.S. Roads and Bridges Are Decaying Despite Stimulus Influx. This is the sort of stuff they put out in Britain years ago. Same stuff, which is true. And because again, it's a long-term business plan. You let it go to, to the, to, to, to ruin. And then you give it over to, to the big corporation. It ends up having the toll, the toll roads. The public will finance for the upkeep. The big boys suddenly rake in the cash. It's quite a great deal, that, isn't it? But says roads with pavement in poor condition have advanced deterioration and typically require structural repair or replacement, according to the FHWA in the U.S. Such roads, Tripp says, may have ruts, cracks and potholes that give millions of Americans rough rides that increase repair costs and fuel consumption. Now, it's almost the same article that came out in Britain years ago, and then Lord Rothschild came out with a bill to privatise them all, again using public money to repair them all, and then they privatise them for peanuts, probably to his own firm, I don't know, but then they all end up being toll roads which they own, and it was strange public-private deal with the government where you pay for its upkeep and repair, and they just rake in all the money. It's not bad, 
It's not bad business, isn't it? See, they see, see, they understand that government to these big boys at the top has always been their business. They own the governments. For, for well over a hundred years, they've owned the governments of the world. And this is where it's all supposed to head. Now, also, this article two, as we went to the, again, well, we're really in the surveillance stage already and, uh, and there's more gadgetry coming out and all the rest of it too and laws, etc. to get more data on every single... Well, well, I understand the big boys at the top are shepherds and you're the sheep. And every farmer knows you've got to have... These, I mean, a good farmer will know the whole genealogy of, of each sheep there or if you've got cattle, same thing. He knows that who bred with whom to, to get this particular offspring and the strain uh, and how much it yields and all the rest of it, what it's health-like, etc. Same with us, folks. Same with us. Uh, but anyway, Senator uh, says, surveillance state based on secret law has no place in America. Well, they all say these the right things, but no one does anything about it. But anyway, he says, but if it's not stopped now, it may soon be too late. U.S. government has created an, an always explaining omnipresent surveillance state. It says, always expanding surveillance state. According to Senator Ron Wyden, and if something isn't done, it may soon become impossible to dismantle. If we don't seize this unique moment in our constitutional history to reform our surveillance laws and practices, we'll all live to regret it, Wyden said in a speech at the Center for American Progress Tuesday. He's a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He said that although he and others in the Senate have tried to alert the U.S. public to the erosion of civil liberties caused by government surveillance programs, current law bars even members of Congress from publicly disclosing details of them, of these programs. The gag order is so strict, Wagner said, that although he and some of his congressional colleagues managed to shut down an NSA mail mass monitoring program in 2011, they weren't allowed to tell anyone they had done so until just a few weeks ago. Some of this is only now starting to change, Wagner said, in light of the revelations made by NSA leaker and current asylum seeker Edward Snowden. Just last month, disclosures made by an NSA contractor lift, uh, lit the surveillance world on fire. Several provisions of secret law were no longer secret, and the American public were finally able to see some of the things I've been raising the alarm about for years. And when they did, he says they were stunned, and they're really angry, he says. He also says it's a law without end. Like many others in Congress, wide support the Patriot Act and other national security legislation proposed in the wake of terror attacks September 11, 2001. But he did so, he said, with understanding that those laws had built-in expiration dates. Dates that have since been extended several times without significant public discussion. The result is the creation of an always expanding omnipresent surveillance state that hour by hour chips needlessly away at the liberties and freedoms of our founders and established for us without the benefit of actually making us any safer, widen said. Well, that's agenda. It, it is actually called that as perpetual war. And I've read uh, an article from the military magazine that was put out a few years back talking about perpetual war, uh, one after another, never, never ending, actually. You, you, you don't even finish one, but you're already in another, and that's what the public would be trained from in, from then on. And that was done by an intelligence offer, officer who was up in the in the know, obviously, and he laid out pretty, pretty well. And that's the kind of world we're living in, perpetual war. Many others at the top of it have said in other articles, too, that this war will go on forever. Uh, and it will, folks, until the whole agenda that was planned a hundred years ago is completely fulfilled. It's not just a war abroad, it's a war on people inside the nations. It's the end of nations too to come out of it as well through financial clout at the end. 
and the lack of cash. That's part of the built-in agenda and restructuring of society altogether. That's the way it's supposed to go. Now, tonight too I'll put up an article. It's called Shocking Extermination Fantasies by the People Running America's Empire on Full Display at the Aspen Summit. And it says, uh, and it goes through uh, what happens. It's uh, this big um, audience packed with spooks, spies, lawmakers, lawyers, and mercenaries. CNN's Wolf Blitzer introduced recently retired CENTCOM, S-E-N-T-C-O-M, Chief General James Mattis. And this is his work with them. Blitzer said of Mattis, I know it's hard to run an operation like this. Then you find out the statements they make. And boy, does that give you a shock. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back talking about CENTCOM, it's called. Big meeting at Aspen Institute too, with uh, all the top guys involved in this war on terror, etc. And it's said here, they're, they're talking to, um, it says, following the, ga- the gales of chain that resounded from the room, Mattis, uh, the gruff 40-year-old Marine veteran who once volunteers opinion that it's fun to shoot some people, outlined the challenge ahead. He says, the war on terror that began on 9-11 has no discernible end, he said likening it to the constant skirmishing between the U.S. Cavalry and the Indians during the genocidal Indian Wars of the 19th century. And it's likely to go on for a generation, he said. In other words, there's no discernible end to it till they've killed off everybody they wanted to kill off. His remarks made beside a, a cable news personality who acted more like a sidekick than a journalist set the tone for the entire 2013 Aspen Security Forum this July. A project of the Aspen Institute, the Security Forum, brought together the key figures behind America's vast national security state from military chieftains like Mattis to embattled National Security Agency Chief General Keith Alexander to top FBI and CIA officials, along with the bookish uh, functionaries attempting to establish legal groundwork for expanding the war on terror. And then he goes into all the different journalists who were invited into it. And, and this particular author, who, or journalist who, who did this piece too, too, who attended, um, asked if uh, they're all getting funded, all these particular embedded journalists, you might call it, that give Americans their news, and how do you think about things, uh, were getting paid by the military-industrial complex, uh, etc., and they wouldn't, he couldn't get an answer, but they pretty well hinted it certainly was. But it's quite a good article too. Also mentions to another forum sponsor that was sponsoring uh, the journalists and so on was Academy, the private mercenary corporation formerly known as Blackwater. In fact, Academy is Blackwater's third incarnation. Incarnation was first renamed XE since revelations of widespread human rights abuses and possible war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan threw the mercenary firm into full damage control mode. The Aspen Institute didn't respond to my questions about whether accepting sponsorship from such an unsavory entity was fit within its ethical guidelines. And it says exterminating people too. John Ashcroft, the former Attorney General who prosecuted the war on terror under the administration of George Bush, appeared at Aspen as a board member of Academy. Quite interesting too, this, obviously the mutual chairs between politicians and appointees and then back in as CEOs of big corporations and even mercenary corporations. And uh, respond to a question about U.S. over-reliance on the kinetic approach of drone strikes and special forces. Ashcroft reminded the audience that the U.S. also likes to torture terror suspects, not just exterminate them. This is what's running <laughs> the whole system, folks. 
He says, it's not true that we have relied solely on the kinetic option. He said, we wouldn't have so many detainees if we, we'd relied on the ability to exterminate people, which they also do, obviously. We've had a blended and nuanced approach for the guy who's on the other end of a hellfire missile. He doesn't see that as a, a nuance, he says. So these are the guys having a sort of love-in, you might say, living off the public purse, and including all the private mercenary corporations too, and guys have done awfully well within government itself, and even better once they, they get rewarded when they leave government and get into be CEOs of big corporations. But that's how things work in the real world, folks. That's really really how it works. That's that's how life really is. Also, it's so bad inside the U.S. as they bring down the whole system. It's just going, going, still going. Detroit family home still for sale after 519 days, despite being on the market for just one dollar, it says here. I mean, no one wants to live there anymore. It's such a, it's like a third world. It's a third world system there. And even the houses, there's so many houses up for sale. Big gangs and, and different ones have, have ripped out the plumbing and the wiring and all the rest to sell it for copper, etc., etc. That's just a, it's an absolute mess. And it was an awfully nice place at one time when they, before they moved everything offshore, etc., and made sure that Americans had work in their own country. Also, an article to do with uh, Gerfek again. Gerfek has, has, has been trialled in Scotland, and people are heading back at it too. They don't want this incredible... It's not just an intrusion into the family home. Every every child in Scotland is is to be given a state guardian by by the, the, the state, who's allowed to come into the home anytime they want to, and interfere, of course, naturally, and then write up confidential memos to their bosses about them, and so on and so on, to make sure the child's wellness is okay, they're claiming. But it's to do with their indoctrination. I've gone through the questions that ask the children, and it's just astonishing. But not so astonishing. It's what the Soviets wanted to do, but never got that far. You understand that... Um, the Rees Commission that was done back in the 50s to find out why the big foundations in the U.S., like the Rockefeller, Ford, Carnegie, and all the rest of them, were funding what appeared to be communist institutions. Uh, they found out that Norman Dodd, when he questioned the one at Ford uh, Foundation, it was quite honest, he says, we take our orders from the White House. And he said the job is to change the culture so much in America that uh, without people even knowing that they'd integrate it with that of the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union was to blend with the West. It's all been done, folks. In fact, it was a super-Soviet now. It really is a super-Soviet. To do with human engineering and, and the manipulation of the psyche and training the children from birth into to be good citizens. Now, good means whatever the present government wants them to be. Same with the adults, too, by the way. So Gerfeck breaches Article 8 and the Data Protection Act, it says, I'll put that up tonight too, to show you that they don't, they don't care at the top. Uh, understands that the U.S. Constitution, if, if the governments are not following the Constitution, uh, then you've got a lawless government. They should, they, should, they should really come out and define what it is. Understand? Also, an article from the Japan Times about this surveillance system and it's called the Five Eyes Surveillance System. That's what it's called, and it's been called that since World War II at least. And it says that, um, that the Five Eyes Group uh, together have five English-speaking democracies, the U.S., Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, in a collaboration that began during World War II. 
and it's to do with, uh, it says Britain needed the U.S. intelligence to help thwart major terrorist attack. It says New Zealand relied on it to send troops to Afghanistan, and Australia used it to help convict a would-be bomber. All feats were the result of a spying alliance known as the Five Eyes that groups together five English-speaking democracies. And they point to a vital lesson. American information is so valuable, experts say, that no amount of global outrage over secret U.S. surveillance powers could cause Britain, Canada, uh, Australia, and New Zealand to ditch the Five Eyes relationship. And it goes on and on and on. But really, uh, these are all members, remember, uh, of uh, the British Commonwealth, apart from the U.S. Although, I think it's all the same system. Because the guys who came up with the idea of the British Commonwealth uh, were to do with the Royal Institute of International Affairs. And Lord Alfred Milner actually coined that term. It sounded better than the Dominion, the British Dominion, or English Dominion of the world, uh, and he called it the British Commonwealth. And, uh, and because the U.S. branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs is called the CFR, uh, then uh, uh, they're on board with it too, completely. In fact, they were given the job of finishing it off, and financing it and so on, and giving the military to finish it off. I'll put this link up tonight as well. Also in Detroit, uh, it's quite amazing to do with the amount, uh, the police officers now that are, I guess, supplementing their wages. But it says multiple Detroit police officers are suspected of armed robbery during traffic stops. And uh, so it says, uh, it says there are reports of multiple incidents involving at least three officers. One victim said he was pulled over by three men in unmarked Crown Victoria. The man was searched and while he answered questions and the cops took his wallet and CDs. Another involved two men in black Ford F-150 with police lights pulling into a gas station allegedly pistol whipped customers pumping gas. The men then stole cash and cell phones from their victims. A warning went out to be on the lookout for fake cops, but it turns out those officers were not fake at all. It appears the sergeant in this case was driving his personal vehicle. It's just getting so blatant, isn't it? Uh, this is what you get in a failed state. It's like Africa. And Africa going from little, little internal country to internal country, you better take lots of cheap watches with you and things like that, because that's how you get through. Everything's just corrupt, you see, and that's the natural way there. And so if you don't have them, you're in trouble, you know. But as I say, when you see the signs of a failed state within your own country, you've got big problems. But again, do you really? Because that's the plan. That's the plan, folks, and the big boys will have their solutions down the road. They know what's coming. It's meant to come. It's planned that way, folks. Planned that way. Well, from Hamish, myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. I mean, your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>